Greetings from Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. Usually when we talk about lighthouses on this podcast, we concentrate on the history or trauma and drama that surrounds so many of the lighthouses on the Great Lakes, as we did on our last episode with Frederick Stonehouse. Today we are joined by Carl Lindquist, who is the Executive Director of the Superior Watershed Partnership Land Conservancy, to discuss the newest incarnation of Standard Rock Lighthouse, dubbed the most loneliest place on earth. Greetings, Mr. Lindquist. Greetings. It's, it's good to be here. Well, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, I know our schedules have finally allowed us all to kind of come together here. So um, Standard Rock, or Stranded Rock, among its other many aliases, was built in 1883 and is 24 miles out in the depths of Lake Superior. The structure is still considered one of the 10 greatest engineering accomplishments in U.S. history, and that's saying something considering how long ago that was built. The light was first lit on the 4th of July, 1883, and it's, it's never been truly decommissioned. It was automated in 1962 after the tragic explosion we discussed with Mr. Stonehouse in our previous episode, but at this time, it, it's still an active navigational light today. Is that correct? That is correct. And in 2008, it started serving double duty uh, when equipment was installed to monitor and help determine whether or not evaporation was causing receding water levels of the Great Lakes. Uh, was your organization involved in that project? Uh, in 2008, we were not. We uh, took over ownership in 2015. 2015. How long have you been associated with the Superior Watershed Partnership and Land Conservancy? Uh, since the very beginning, uh, and we are going to be having our 25th anniversary next year. So we've grown from uh, one employee to uh, 20 year-round, and then we add 30 seasonals in the summer. So uh, we've, we've grown a little bit in 25 years. Well, congratulations on that. And uh, you've got quite a long list of credentials on your website. The Watershed Partnership is an award-winning nonprofit. Your organization has set national records for pollution prevention, also recognizes implementing innovative science-based programs that have resulted in documented measurable uh, results. And you also deal with invasive species, removal prevention, water quality, land protection, which doesn't really relate to standard rock, not much property out there, and youth programs. So you got a, you got a, a bunch of stuff on your plate. Yeah, we do. And I guess to, to bring it back to standard over the years, we've really focused a lot of the work we do on climate change. And um, so everything now, we even have a, a separate energy office where we do low-income weatherization and low-income solar and things like that. But we work with communities on climate adaptation, whether it's impacts from more severe storms and coastal erosion and things like that. And that's why we're getting more into climate planning and climate uh, using monitoring data. Uh, some data that we generate, we have several buoys that we put out on Lake Superior to gather data. But when we had the opportunity to acquire Standard Rock Lighthouse from the federal government, we jumped and it's been a good move. So through agreements that we've, we've we have agreements that we allow the, the, the Canadian government, the Environment Canada, and the U.S. government and the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, to continue to conduct climate research out there and other types of weather research. So 
then we can even use some of that data in some of our regional planning. So it's really been a win-win for everybody. And slowly we're uh, in the process of, of trying to restore the light. But I think the biggest news I have to share with you is that we're kicking off and uh Technically, I guess I'll use your show here to, to formally kick it off. We're going to have a press release out soon. A formal campaign to uh, raise the extra money we need to restore that lighthouse, but also make it a state-of-the-art uh, international climate research center. Even though it's used for research now, it's kind of spooky. We have computers and monitoring equipment set up and on the outside, but inside where the computers sit, it's peeling paint and uh, nothing's been done in probably 75 years as far as real renovation work. Yeah, again, those pictures you showed me were, were great, but I, I, I kind of, uh, I grew up in Traverse City by the old state hospital there. I love buildings in that state of disrepair. <laughs> I'm always attracted to yeah. those kind of buildings. What's your background personally? Uh, science? Yeah, environmental management and anthropology a long time ago, and that's kind of uh, worked out well as far as uh, all the things we do, environmental work, uh, community work, and we've really grown to be the largest um, nonprofit, well, I'll say environmental nonprofit in the Upper Peninsula, but we fill a lot of voids because the area is somewhat underserved in, in, in some ways. So I was mentioning some of the, the low-income uh, weatherization programs and things like that that we would never thought we'd be involved with in years ago, but it does complement our climate work and uh, other work that we're doing. Well, thanks for using our platform here to release that very important news uh, for the future of the of what you're you know what you're doing out there. And, and is that the, the main mission will still continue to be uh, climate change? That or, or will be climate change uh, monitoring the climate change? Yes, I'd say that would be the primary purpose. Though, um, you know, we have uh, the, the seasonal workers I talked about, we call them our Great Lakes Climate Corps, the GLCC. Mostly uh, college students or recent graduates. Uh, they don't have to be, but that's uh, normally what the, the makeup is from around the Upper Peninsula and Lower Peninsula, sometimes other states. But uh, the Great Lakes Climate Corps, they're doing a variety of projects all around the Upper Peninsula this summer, but they will be going out. Every summer we have a crew go out once or twice to Standard Rock and to continue plugging away at removing the lead-based paint and priming and getting, you know, window repair, things like that, things that uh, we can do that we don't have to contract out. Yeah, that's obviously my next question was going to be um, what needs to be done. I saw in the pictures, you know, the, the building's antiquated and obviously been beaten by Lake Superior for so so many years. Uh, is there a lot of structural work also that needs to be done to the to the, the the building prior to your ambitious concepts for the renovation? The good news is no, not uh, in the the sense of the the main structure is sound. You know, I think I don't know if Fred mentioned it, but some of the the blocks at the base of that structure, a single stone can weigh thirty tons. Whoa. So. That is not going anywhere. I always say it reminds me of something that the Greeks built, you know. It's just so, when you're standing next to it, it just kind of blows your mind that that was built in the 1880s. Um, but anyway, um, the structure is sound, but a lot of the, uh, like each level, 
needs interior work done and that's not cheap especially you know when you're hauling everything out from shore you mentioned you're right it's 25 miles from the nearest shore the tip of the Keweenaw but we're in Marquette and the Coast Guard we often go out with the Coast Guard or sometimes we'll uh, charter a local boat but that's 40 miles so we're going out 40 miles hauling gear and most contractors would leave from here too so you know just the cost and the the time and the, oh it, it jacks up the price considerably yeah and that's one thing is you're, you're a 501c3 so you're, you're a non-profit that's what i was going to ask too is that where are the funds coming from well uh we're gonna launch a public campaign looking uh we don't re we rarely do that we uh we operate on grants local state federal private grants and we anticipate uh, getting some through grants, but we're also going to be asking the public uh, contractors, you know, if they want to donate some time or equipment or, you know, their their time to help make this happen or cash, whatever. We're open to all uh, possibilities as far as uh, we're estimating about 1.5 million will be needed overall. But it's not needed urgently so as we get funding we can start uh, plugging away at different levels and and uh you know get that uh, international research station up and running uh sooner rather than waiting for the entire structure what is it all how many levels i forget i think i was going to ask you yeah eight floors is there eight levels i think yeah if you count the lower levels that are subsurface yes but we're not going to do anything down there any idea, and this is a, a tough call these days with construction, even without the logistical uh, challenges of, of, of that structure's location, so isolated out there, uh, any idea of when you kind of expect to kind of um, well, basic, basically complete the renovations? Our, our goal would be in the next three years, three to four years, but, uh, you know, uh, it could be sooner, could be a little longer, but... Uh, it all depends on once we go public with this campaign. Yeah, great. Um, you know, uh, one of the ironic things I've learned is, you know, it was uh, when the federal government, uh, it was decades ago, started that program to uh, get rid of federal lighthouses. It was because of the expense of maintaining them. And somebody thought it was uh, a, a good idea that... Uh, you know, and in one sense, one sense it is, if they're automated and uh, the government doesn't want the cost of maintaining hundreds of these lighthouses, they started uh, either giving them away to local units of government or nonprofits or selling them um, if there was no interest. And I'm sure you've seen that happening, too. But the, the problem is there are no, virtually no federal programs to support lighthouse restoration anymore, right? Yeah, that is irony, huh? And there's very few at the state level, or very little funding at the state level. Um, so I'm like, and we're really good at getting grants, but we've looked, and there are very few state or federal grant programs that truly support lighthouse renovation and restoration. And they're such an important part of our history. Yeah, right. It's ironic. And I don't think, I think it was an unintended consequence when they started that program decades ago. Um, anyway, we'll find a way to, to raise the funding, and, and we're kind of excited about that, actually. 
I imagine you've you've been out out to the structure several times, maybe at least. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my favorite story is uh, the first time I went out there. Went out on the brand. We you know we have a Coast Guard station here in Marquette, and they have a state of the art jet boat. It's I know it has a Rolls Royce engine. Whoa! It's this sleek. I can't really describe it. It's just high high tech. And it was perfectly flat conditions, and we it's 40 miles, and we were out there in just over an hour. Man, that's cruising. And uh, then we climb up onto the, you know, you have to go up this vertical ladder and up to the, to, on top of the base, the support structure, and uh, a couple of young Coast Guard Coasties, I guess they call them, uh, got off with us. But then that jet boat took off to the east at a high speed. <laughs> and I'm like, well, how are we getting back? Yeah. <laughs> Stranded said, rock. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting back. On a, it was like a 50-year-old buoy tender with a crane on it. And uh, it took us over five hours to get back. Oh, my. I'm not so much for the, for the big waters out there. I mean, I, I respect <laughs> these lakes, you know, and the power they have. Fred mentioned when the first time he went out there, he couldn't even see it. It was so engulfed in, in fog. Yeah, I believe it. Staffing of the building, is it is it going to be, are they going to be year-round, weekly rotations, monthly, just periodic? Yeah, it'll be periodic. It's mainly, uh, some, occasionally it'll be our staff. Sometimes it'll be Canadian researchers. Sometimes it'll be U.S. researchers working with NOAA. But right now they, you know, they go out and they, they, they stay an hour or two and I don't want to make it out like it's, uh, it's just not very welcoming. It's cold, it's clammy, it's peeling paint. And uh, frankly, right, you know, we're putting in a portable toilet this summer. So these options, you know, are slowly getting upgraded, but it's not a very welcoming place, but it will be after we do the restoration work and I think people will look forward to spending the night. And, and frankly, there's a lot of work to be done out there. It helps to be able to spend uh, uh, a little more time when you're doing the work or updating the monitoring equipment, et cetera. I personally find it. I, I'd do anything to get out there. Uh, I'm an urban explorer. I love dilapidated buildings. Uh, I've been to Chernobyl and all these strange places. People ask me, what, what, what the hell did you go to Chernobyl for? Well, it's like... I, I love urban exploring when you're in the middle of Pripyat, the whole town, and then you visit 20 to 300 villages that have all been, you know, vacated during during the, the horrible ex explosion over there. But, um, yeah, the building just looks so, so cool to me, even in the state it's in right now. Yeah, well, you're more than welcome uh, if you're available on short notice. You know, again, it's often with the weather. We'll pick a date, and then it'll get postponed because of the weather, you know, and it'll be moved back a day. But it'll you can go on relatively short notice, uh, I'll let you know. Oh, man, I'm going to take you up on that one. I, I, honestly, that, that's, that, that would be great. All right. Uh, the next time is uh, later in July. So I'm, if you're serious, I'll keep you posted. Uh, please do. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, evaporation can be such a, you know, get back, back to the environment and the, and the climate change here in northern Michigan. I mean, keeping it non-political, but um, evaporation uh, of water when we don't have ice it's such a great factor. It's even even more important than the snowfall and the runoff that we get that creates, you know, millions and billions of gallons of water into the Great Lakes Basin. But that evaporation is so dramatic in a in a year like this where we have such a little ice coverage. Right. And, you know, 
evaporation is affects uh, more things than people realize. Um, the last time the lake froze uh, almost all the way over was not that long ago, and they believe that because most of the evaporation on Superior, especially, but I think it's true of most of the Great Lakes, most of it occurs during the winter months, which uh, people find, um, you know, well, you know, contrary to what you would think. Yeah, but, you think summer, hot summer. Right, but that winter when it was almost completely iced over, it shut down evaporation, and that is one of the main factors that precipitated the record high lake levels. It was a fa one an important factor, I should say, because it was a year of virtually uh, no evaporation that winter. And you remember the high lake levels we had, they were record high for several years. So things like that, why it's important, and the fact that it's remote from land, it, it uh, provides, how do I want to say it, uh, the data is more accurate. It's not influenced by other landborne uh, factors, whether it's communities or, or or other wind currents and things. And so the evaporation data, like you said, is really important. But a lot of other data is gathered out there, and you know, the from wave height and speed, and and we're adding uh, wind speed and uh, other factors and. Uh, NOAA is looking at expanding some of the monitoring they're doing, and uh, we're actually adding some uh, more equipment and a, a better webcam and some other things later this summer. You mentioned that, and I had that in my notes here. You know, 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, I think it was 16, the winter of 15, 16, when we had all that ice coverage in the Great Lakes, which is so strange because, you know, we're... It's not just like a globing, uh, a warming trend. It, it's it's a change because the winters I'm experiencing here in, in, in northern Michigan in the last 10 years are not like when I was a kid growing up. And they kept getting milder and milder. And then all of a sudden, 16 and 17, man, I remember coldest I personally seen that. I walked out. I was living by Boyne, uh, Boyne Mountain that year. And it was, it was 40 below that morning. And we had 22 consecutive days where it got zero and below in February. And so then, then, then all of a sudden it started warming up again. And it was just, you know, it's strange to have so much ice coverage, such cold weather for those two years. And then here we are back to like this year, I think was one of the mildest on record. There's something going on. Right. And I think, you know, the climatologists that we work with, common theme is that it's just going to get weirder and unpredictable. I mean, that's the thing. And they're, you know, they don't venture and any actual guesses as to what's going to happen because it's it's uh, harder and harder to do that but it what you're saying is absolutely true we can have record high lake levels then we can have record cold and then we can have pretty almost record uh, wet weather and then we just had near record uh, dry spell um right. and it's there's really no accounting for it other than climate change. Yeah, it's interesting that the historic high levels uh, from, from two years ago, uh, you had houses crashing into, into Lake Michigan here. And then it's funny because newspapers love to be sensationalistic. Uh, this year I saw an article about the low lake levels on Lake Michigan. What does that mean for homeowners? I'm, it means the guy that lost his house last year into the drink is, you know, you're not going to lose your house like he did. Um, so, you know, those, those fluctuating lake levels 
can cause quite a bit of problem with homeowners. We lost our bike trail here in, in Petoskey. Uh, a chunk of the most scenic section just, just crashed into the lake. Yeah, and here in Marquette, we lost, uh, you know, almost a mile of shoreline was eroded, including a large section of Lakeshore Boulevard. So it costs many millions to address that. Actually, we're doing the final phase starting this summer, uh, restoring the actual shoreline to more natural conditions. And uh, a lot of that's due to the record high lake levels. Yeah, Mackinac suffered that too. Part of the bike, the bike path was was just eroded, completely eroded a year or two ago. Yeah. So to tie this back to standard a little bit, I can send you links to some of the climate adaptation plans we call them. Uh, one we've developed for coastal communities on Lake Superior, but then there are you know uh, state and federal plans that for the Great Lakes and for the country for that matter, but. As far as uh, Lake Superior goes, a lot of the, the data that's gathered from Standard Rock gets incorporated into these plans at, at some level, and it, it helps with forecasting. Even though it's difficult, you can see that some of these trends, you know, that it helps design if, if weather events are getting more extreme and more frequent, you know, how do you design for a coastal restoration project? Right. You, has to be hardier. It has to be more resilient, and so that's how the data gets used, and uh, that's why it's important. Yeah, National Geographic. I remember it's probably pushing twenty years ago now. I grew up in Traverse City. I remember seeing. I'm flipping through National Geographic, and they showed uh, East Bay, and like a third of the shallows were gone, completely gone. And they said one of the the places that you will see climate change the most is really in our region uh, at this 45th parallel going across the whole globe. Um, and, and we're seeing that. My wife also is uh, from Belarus. Uh, you think about, it's funny because she's always cold, but yeah, you, th you think about the, the Siberian winters and all these things. Well, in Belarus, they're, they're not experiencing winter at all any longer. They have like a, like a two days of snow and, and then, it, then it's back to spring-like weather for the whole winter. So they're really experiencing a major drastic change and they're just, they're actually, you know, north of us. So it's kind of disconcerting. It is. And the, the fires in Canada, I, oh, I've, God. Uh, that's bringing that same parallel around that, that, you know, the boreal forests around the planet. Um, on a positive note, I guess I'm trying to find something positive to say there. I think I, I might, oh, I was going to say, I don't know if it is positive really, but you're, you're right. There's a, a lot of uh, change happening at the Great Lakes level, but there are also r reasons that people are moving here, right? Mm -hmm. The people from the West Coast that are having fires, people, people from the Deep South that are having drought or 110 degree weather, uh, on and on and on. Um, the trend has started. We've seen it documented that, you know, a lot of real estate is being bought up by what we're calling climate refugees, but it's actually people with the resources that can have either a second home on the Great Lakes or or they can move here and work remotely. And it's partly because even though things are changing here, there you know, we have the water, we have the cooler weather, we have the long-term trends that this is a good place to be in terms of climate change. That, that is absolutely a fact. My wife, uh, we, we went to Florida this year, and she's like, I want to live in Florida. I'm like, 
we absolutely do not want to live in Florida. <laughs> no, no offense to anybody who lives in Florida. That's not my dream destination. Uh, I have I have to agree with you. Um, and, and going back to that that cold winter um, uh, of 2016, uh, I had the rare opportunity, and uh, it may not have been the brightest idea, but it was strange. I love harsh winters because I like when when March rolls around and we can have warm days. And still have you know ice all, all across and, and the straits of Mackinac were flooded are still completely covered with ice that that day um, I walked over to st. Helena Island from Grocap, and I have a picture of myself it was like 45 degrees that day and I'm standing out in the middle of the Straits of Mackinac the islands to my left and behind me is the Mackinac Bridge and I don't have a jacket on so it totally looks photoshopped um, wow. people are like you're, what, what, you're crazy walking out there and I make a bad joke and the girl that I was dating at the time I made sure she walked five feet in front of me so it was safe um <laughs> everything was fine but oh well you were on the ice I was I, I walked all the way to St. Helen Island that's five miles out and five miles well three and a half two and a half miles across and then two and a half miles back so wow. it was yeah. uh, an ambitious uh, uh adventure that day I, I said I was going to make it up to the island and I did so how can people help your project donations volunteers what you know what can what can we do to put the the notice out there as to how to help your your organization well that's a i'm glad that you asked so you know the watershed partnership we cover the whole up so we do a lot of work you know with communities on lake superior but we also work on lake michigan and lake huron and uh we work with uh you know all 15 counties all five tribes and uh with a lot of other partners so there are opportunities to volunteer on land. We have, especially in the summer, we have, you know, whether planting grass or planting trees or restoring habitat or community projects. But uh, as far as the lighthouse, that's a little more difficult to get people to volunteer out there. But if they, if they can contribute, that would be great. And then, um, you know, we'll continue to share the data uh, with everybody and uh, be part of the part of the solution we definitely appreciate what you're, you're doing out there and it's it's been my pleasure to have you here today to talk about the exciting things that are happening out there at the the loneliest place on earth um so a special thanks to carl lindquist executive director of the superior watershed partnership and land conservancy for joining us today and as always if there's any topics of special interest that you'd like to hear us feature on our podcast here or if you'd like to be a guest find us on facebook I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and please join us again next time on Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. <music>